Good morning. <clears throat> Let me try that again. Good morning. It's not that you're not loud enough. I'm not loud enough. Uh, I'm Stan Mast, introduced earlier. I'm the adjunct professor of preaching at Calvin Theological Seminary. People sometimes ask what adjunct means. It means part-time and cheap. But I love being there. It's wonderful to have a, a job in, in retirement. I retired four years ago after serving for 41 years in the ministry of the Christian Reformed Church, the last 22 of which were downtown in uh, LaGrave Avenue Christian Reformed Church, a great time in my life. And it's a great time now to be semi-retired and to be with you. Uh, I invite you to join me uh, on a journey this morning to a strange foreign land. It's the foreign land of the minor prophets in the Bible, and particularly the prophet named Joel. I think the page number is written in your uh, order of worship. It's Joel chapter 2, and I call this a strange foreign land because I would guess that nobody here has been in Joel in their devotions lately. Am I right about that? It's, it's, it's come on, no. Uh, it's really not the kind of place you go for edifying things. It's a, a strange place. It's different. And uh, whenever I go to a strange new place, I take a map. And I provided you a map for this text and for my sermon in your order of worship. I invite you to uh, use it to keep from getting lost. The text is a little complicated, a little few twists and turns, and uh, the sermon follows those. So. Uh, unless you follow the map, you might get a little lost and wonder where in the world I'm going in the sermon. But if you follow the map, you'll know. And I understand that uh, if you kids fill out the blanks in the outline, there's some leftover muffins uh, as a prize for you after the service. Uh, I made that part up. Uh, that is not true, but uh, it would help you if you filled in the blanks. Uh, and um, one more thing. This is what I would call a gospel promise in a minor key. Joel 2 verse 25, it's wonderful and yet it's a little strange. And I, I want to illustrate that for you audibly by having uh, Sherry play Amazing Grace, first of all, the way we usually hear it. recognize that it all sounds right here's amazing grace in a minor key you hear the difference that sounds wrong a little odd twisted bent what you're going to hear now is the gospel in a minor key I'm going to begin reading with the first part of chapter 2, where God says, here's what's going to happen. And then I'll pick it up again at the middle of chapter 2, where God says, here's what you need to do about what's going to happen. And then I'll end up with the latter part of that chapter, beginning with verse 18, where God says, and here's what I'm going to do about the situation that's about to happen to you. So three small parts. So first of all, second chapter, first verse, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. 
Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old and ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sign of them, nations are in anguish, every face turns pale. And then down to verse 12 where God says, here's what you must do about what's coming. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And then over to verse 18 where God says, here's what I will do. And then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a barren and parched land with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains, as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And now here's the promise to which all of this points. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarms, my great army that I sent among you. All of this is the word of the Lord. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. That is one of God's most comforting and uncomfortable promises. As lovely as a Michigan hillside covered with flowering trees and as gnarly as a twisted old oak standing all alone on top of a Michigan sand dune. The gospel in a minor key. Beautiful, but twisted and gnarly and difficult. The Lord will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. My army that I sent among you. What on earth does that mean? And what does it have to do with you and me? Well, the chapter opens with a news flash that's breaking news on all of Israel's news media. There's an army coming. A great army invading Israel from the north and the east. 
At the sign of them, says verse 6, every face turns pale with terror. When this army comes, it will be an army of locusts. You know those insect, grasshopper-type critters with bomb-shaped bodies and an appetite like a turbocharged weed whacker? You know the kind of animal I mean. A huge cloud of locusts was descending on Israel like an invading army. Joel uses some fabulous images to describe it. He said, when they come, it's like the dawn spreading over the mountains, like a wildfire roaring over the prairie, like cavalry thundering at full gallop down a mountain pass. When this army descends on Israel, the earth will shake, the sky will seem to flicker, the moon and the sun will be turned dark. At the sight of them, every face will turn pale. Why would that be? I mean, they're just bugs, just a bunch of bugs. Well, of course, because wherever an army of locusts came, devastation lay in their wake. Where once there was a green field, there would be nothing but brown, short stubble. Where beautiful fruit trees hung heavy with fruit, now there are simply black skeletons outlined against the sky. And when that happened, all the animals would die for lack of food. And with no crops and no livestock, poverty and starvation and death would follow for the entire country. No wonder Joel 1 verse 12, the very beginning of the book says, the joy of mankind has withered away. That's where this text touches our lives. It's for those times in your life when the joy has withered away. I have a friend named Dave, not his real name, who had a successful business a while back. Very successful. He had lots of money, wonderful cars, beautiful home. And then he discovered that one of his most trusted employees was embezzling funds. Half a million dollars. They caught him. They put him in jail. They got a little of the money back. But then three of his biggest clients decided they were going to cut back on their orders by about half. And now his business was cut in half. And then the recession came along. And he poured his own money into the company to keep it going so that his employees wouldn't get laid off. And then... His business was in deep trouble, and he lost his car and the cars he gave his children. And then he lost the entire business, and he had nothing to do. And then he lost his house. And, and then one of his children walked away from the church because if God did all that to my dad, I want nothing to do with him. I showed this text to him and his wife, and she wept. She said, that's us. Our joy has withered away. But it isn't just adults who lose their joy. I know a little boy who was stung by a bee. Ever happened to anybody here? No big deal, right? 
Hurts a little bit and you get over it? Well, not so much for him. He was stung by a bee. He went into anaphylactic shock. His face puffed, his throat closed, he couldn't breathe, his heart sped up. He almost died. And forever after, he's been watching for bees. If he sees one, he ducks. He's always watching. And then he began to watch for every threat. He became a nervous little boy. School became nothing but a chore, a threat for him. He melted down in every class. He was a good student. He became a bad student. And the locusts ate his entire first grade year. Some of us here have had years like that. In fact, I would guess that somebody sitting here is having one right now. A year that the locusts are devouring. Well, if that's anybody here, I have some good news for you now. Some wonderful news in this strange gospel in a minor key text. But for you to get it, I mean really get it, I have to focus for a little while on the jarring notes in the text. Those places that are not nice. It starts at the very end of my text, verse 25, where God says, after saying, I'm going to repay you the years the locusts have eaten, he says, my army that I sent among you. You can imagine Israel saying, wait, wait, what, what did you say? These locusts that are coming are coming from you? These locusts are your army? And with that little note, we're introduced to one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. The mystery of the relationship between a good God and terrible suffering. It's the mystery over which all of us at some point in our lives will stumble. It's the mystery that makes it very difficult for a lot of people to believe. How do you connect a God like this God with the stuff that happens in my life? It's hard to understand. It challenges our faith. That's not the hardest thing in this text. In verses 11 and 12, God says to the people of Israel, The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord your God. That must have hit Israel like a slap in the face. I mean, think about it. Joel says these locusts are coming from God. They are a distant early warning of the day of the Lord. And Israel said, wonderful. We have been waiting for the day of the Lord. We've been waiting for that day when God will finally come down from heaven to this earth and take care of our enemies. These people that have made our lives miserable. Bring on the day of the Lord. And God says to them, not so fast, my people. 
You think that day will be great because your enemies are going to finally get it? Well, I tell you that day will not be so great for you unless you repent of your own sins. What a slap in the face. I mean, your own life has been devastated by the forces of evil. The locusts have eaten away your joy. And God says, what you need to do is repent. And you say, me? I need to repent? Hey, I'm the victim here. You're telling me I need to repent? I've been devastated. What about these other people? The really evil ones, the victor, the, the villains, the perpetrators. How do you make sense of that combination of messages from God? The minor key seems to ruin the promise. Well, we can, we can say two things that are a little bit helpful. First of all, we should remember what Jesus said about the moat and the beam. Remember that little parable he told? About how easy it is to spot the little speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye when you've got a great big log sticking out of your own? Israel could see the evil in the people around them. It was obvious. God says, you know, you're not exactly perfect either. So if you want the day of the Lord to be great, if you want to see this promise fulfilled, you need to spend some time looking in the mirror and repenting of your own sin. That's one thing to remember, the moat and the beam. Secondly, remember Job. Job who reminds us that not all suffering is a direct result of something we did wrong. Now that was the case for Israel in Joel. Their sins brought the locusts. But Jesus said, remember when his disciples said, Lord, who did wrong, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Remember that little story? And Jesus said, no, no, don't go thinking that way. You should never draw a straight line from your suffering to your sin. That's not how it works. Job's a good example. Job suffered terribly. His friend said, well, then you must have done something wrong. God said, uh-uh. Job, my servant, is blameless. You cannot draw a line from suffering to your own sin. Job did nothing wrong. God did not send all that stuff on Job because he had done something wrong, and yet God allowed it for reasons Job could never fathom, and neither can we. But even when you can't draw a line between your suffering and your sin, and even when you cannot understand how God could have possibly been involved in what happened to you, the call to repent in Joel is still important. And here's why. You know this. When you suffer, it at least makes you sad. And that often makes you angry. And that can lead to bitterness. And that can make your doubt 
grow. And that can separate you from your God. You've had it happen. If you haven't yet, it will. It happens in life. The call to repent in the book of Joel is not a slap in the face to people who are suffering. It is the welcoming hand of God urging them to come back to God, to return to the Lord your God, to come home. Even if you can't understand the mystery of how God is involved in the bad stuff that's happening to you, God has good news. If you return, there's new life for you. New life so good that you can't even imagine it. That's what this text is about. The gospel in a minor key. Tangled, complicated, but good news. Great good news. If we come back to God, He will repay us for the years the locusts have eaten. What does that mean? Well, listen to what God says it meant for Israel. He says, I am sending you grain and new wine and oil. This is verses 19 and 20. Enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you the object of reproach among your neighbors. I will drive the northern army far from you. That's the locust and their stench. They will all die. Their stench will go up. I'm going to give you your crops back. I'm going to restore all of your resources. I'm going to destroy all of your enemies. I'm going to give you back all the joy you ever had and then some. Wonderful promise for Israel. What does that mean for us? Is God saying here, is he really saying that he's going to pay us back for all the stuff we've ever lost in life? The crops, the resources, the joy. Is God really saying to us, all that pain, all that suffering, all that sorrow and loss that you've experienced, you're going to get it all back. I will repay you. Is the good news really that good? Absolutely. Absolutely. And don't think that this is just one little text in one obscure little book which you'd never seen before and are surprised that it's there. No, no, this is a, a vivid historical example of a great biblical doctrine. The doctrine of divine retribution. And all you kids are going, yeah, what does that mean? Divine payback. The Bible is full of it. God will pay back the wicked. It seems like they get away with it now. They just sin and they sin and they sin and nothing ever happens. They get away with it to the end of their lives. Well, says the Bible, there is divine retribution. God will pay people back for their sins. There's justice. God will balance the books of life. 
We know that idea. We've heard it before. We don't much like it these days, but it's there. We know it. Here in Joel, God takes divine retribution and flips it. So that it isn't just about justice for the wicked, it's about mercy for those who have seen the years of their lives devoured by the locusts. My justice, says God, will balance the books. My mercy will pour out an overflowing blessing. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 puts this old promise in Joel in a, a New Testament way. It says, for your light and momentary afflictions, think about your life, think about the trouble you've had. Would you call it light and momentary? Many of us would consider that an insult. But listen to the rest of the text. Your light and momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It seems so heavy and so long, but it's preparing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. In Matthew 18, 29, Jesus said exactly that to his disciples when they said, Lord, we've lost a lot by following you, left our business, left our families, left comfort, left everything to follow you. What are we going to get back? Tell us how we're going to be repaid for our sacrifice. And Jesus says, Matthew 18, 29, a hundred times more in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Earlier I mentioned Job. He's a classic example of this biblical doctrine of divine retribution flipped over. His life was utterly devastated by the locusts. Lost his children lost all his possessions, lost his reputation in the community, lost a relationship with God that was very special. But at the end of the book of Job, he has 10 more children, even more possessions, an even greater reputation, and a walk with God that he couldn't have imagined before the locust came. Some of you are saying, yeah, but he didn't get back those ten children that he lost. They're still dead. In that sense, sometimes the past cannot be repaid. There are some losses that don't get repaid in this life. I mean, ten years of cancer may not be repaid with ten years of brilliant health. A messy divorce might not be repaid with many years of wedded bliss. The loss of a wonderful job might not be followed with an even better job. My father's years of suffering with Alzheimer's disease were not followed with years of clear, wonderful thinking. You may not see the complete fulfillment of this gospel in a minor key in this life. But that doesn't mean it won't be fulfilled. 
because, of course, this life is not all there is. Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 4, the light and momentary troubles are preparing an eternal glory beyond all comparison. All the struggles of life, says Paul, are just preparation, just, just the beginning of what's coming. I love the way C.S. Lewis put it in the last book in the Narnia Chronicles. I suspect that some of you young people have read all of them. Uh, this is at the end of the last battle where the children who've been the heroes of the stories, you know, in all the books, is Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy, am I right, those four? They're the ones who've been going through Narnia with Aslan and all that. Well, at the end of the last battle, they have been killed in a car crash. All four of them. Terrible tragedy. But, says the story, that's when they discovered that life had just begun. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. All of their lives in this world, all of their adventures in Narnia, were but the cover and the title page. Now they were beginning to live chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Here's how we'll sing it in just a moment. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. I hope you won't dismiss what I've been saying as a little slice of pie in the sky by and by. It's not that. This is a gospel promise with all the grit and difficulty of life. It's for right here and right now for people like us who know what it means to see a cloud of locusts coming. It's a part of the great truth of the Christian faith we profess whenever we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Sin may abound here. Grace abounds for all eternity. The locusts cannot win. Not here, not there, not ever. They cannot. So, it's a lot of stuff. What do you do with it? What do you do with this gospel in a minor key? Two things. The, the two things we should always do when we hear the gospel. First of all, we ought to repent. Even when we can't understand how God is involved, even when we're sitting in the middle of a parched, locust-eaten field, we need to resist the temptation to look at all the bad people around us. We need to resist the temptation to turn away from God. And we need to turn to God the call to repent is not a slap in the face. It's the hand of God welcoming us back home. Come home. Come back. 
I know it hurts. I know it's hard to believe. Return to me. But we won't do that if we don't believe. We need to trust that the love and mercy and grace of God will not allow the losses of life to be the last word. The last word in your life is Jesus. Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus reigns for you. And Jesus will return for you. And when he does, one of the 10,000 blessings he will bring is this. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Amen. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being for us so that when things come against us, we can know that they cannot win. Sometimes it feels that way. Right now it feels that way for some of us here. We're having a hard time believing this stuff from Joel. And so we pray that your spirit will take the promise with all of its tangles and complications and apply it to our lives so that we may have joy again and hope again and faith again. Holy Spirit, build us within so that we might celebrate amazing grace all the days of our lives, even when the locusts are coming. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.